Recording. Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. Pastor Wolf Mueller here, Life of Jacob with Luther. And let's see. Um, here we're here we are. Uh oh, wait a minute. I had it just at the right spot and now it's moved around. Um so Jacob dreams, and he's gonna see uh in the dream uh this ladder coming down from heaven and angels ascending and descending. And we got to figure out what does that mean? Now, uh, Luther has highlighted for us already that when God speaks, we really need to pay attention. So there's there's not um, there's not a lot of times. In fact, as we've read through the story, we've had prophecies. The younger will serve the older. But that came through a prophetic word. But now God himself is going to speak directly to Jacob. And and Luther's, this is an amazing thing, is uh, that Luther's going to say, look, the, the very fact that God is speaking to Jacob is going to highlight that that Jacob was in such sadness and anguish of heart. So here Jacob's, he's received the blessing from Isaac, but now he's out in the woods with nothing. He's next to this little town, but he doesn't even want to go into the town. He's sleeping on a rock. He's in outer darkness, Luther says, so to speak, driven from his home and his fatherland, forsaken and solitary, uncertain where he can hide in safety. In addition, the devil has come. The devil who, so what is this? The first is going to be the alienated from his home. Now the devil's going to come who's want to torment afflicted hearts in a thousand strange ways so that the truth of the common saying that no disaster is alone becomes apparent. So here's the saying, uh, you know, one of the inner, curious things about Luther is he really paid attention to idioms. He, he'll always say, uh, like what he'll say, as the, as the Germans like to say, or whatever. These sayings, he really pays attention to them. And so here's one of them, no disaster is alone. And he says, that's true, because if you have one disaster, say you're driven from your house, the devil won't let it stand by itself, but the devil will come along and tempt you in a thousand different ways. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion and seeks where he can most easily climb over the fence and with what stratagems he can overturn the leaning wagon. So the devil is always looking for like a lion. This is the picture here. Like a lion is seeking the weakest of the of the prey. So now here Jacob is isolated and now the devil's after him. This has to do, by the way, with a the side note here. But we we I like to point this out is that when when we are alienated from the various different uh hmm, from the estates maybe maybe say it like this way we know we have the three estates the state and the family and the church and that these are like walls that protect the conscience and when we leave them when we're in a strange place when we're outside of our home and apart from our family um when we leave even our own church then those walls that protect the conscience are kind of taken down a little bit and the devil has access. It's one of the reasons why 
going off to college is so difficult for so many people because those protections for the conscience that are there are kind of torn down. Well, here's Jacob out in the middle of nowhere, and he's very vulnerable. Uh, and so the devil's after it. He climbs across a fence where it's lowest. Temptation is added and piled up for those who are afflicted and tried so that it hurls them headlong into despair, blasphemy, or impatience. We recognize this when um, it just in our own lives. Whenever one thing comes along, say you get sick, and all of a sudden it's not just that you're sick, but you're hopeless, or you're angry at God, or you're irritable and impatient. These are the works of the devil. These are his customary and constant snares. Therefore, besides the physical cross and exile, Jacob undoubtedly was assailed by the fiery darts of the devil. Ephesians 6.10 or 6.16, which is the uh, armor of God uh, text. Perhaps he thought, and now Luther is going to go into explore the, the psychology, the spiritual internal struggle of Jacob. Perhaps he thought about how he had stolen the primogenitor and about how he deceived his father. Was that right? Was that right or wrong? Is that is God punishing me for what I did there? Wow. For in this way, the devil is wont to make a great and enormous sin out of an excellent work. The fact that God speaks with him is a sign of this very grievous trial. In other words, Luther's going to say, because God himself is going to come and appear to him in a dream, it indicates how much Jacob needed this. For he is not wont to pour forth his discussions and words in vain. He does not speak unless an important and necessary reason impels him to speak. Nor is he wont to address or to console those who laugh at him, who exult and rage against him in the pleasures or wisdom of the flesh, who live smugly without fear and of reverence to God. Wisdom uh, is not found in the land of those who live pleasantly, says Job. It's found under the cross and those who are in conflict with spiritual trials. I'd highlighted all these texts, by the way, on my when I was reading it on my little tablet last night, but the highlights didn't come through. I don't know. I don't know why. But this is a, this spiritual. This is a, remember, um, we've talked about this quite a bit. It's it's a. It's a framework that Luther uses to to read the Bible is the the framework of affliction that there's three there's three things that make a theologian remember prayer meditation and oh wow look how nice it's writing something fixed wow I'm so happy prayer meditation and affliction uh, what Luther calls ten Tatio, uh, Anfechtung in German, these spiritual trials that are there. And so we have these three things which are which are giving shape to um to our spirit. This is how it how it goes. And it's when we're in the midst of all of this that the Lord is there with us and strengthening us. I had a conversation this morning that was just asking, what you know, why. Why does the Lord give the devil such a long leash? And the answer is, we don't know. But somehow he uses it for his own good and to bless us. It's pretty amazing, actually. So um, 
So then there's both a reason and a place for consolation. How can the Lord console us if there's no consolation needed? Then God is present and consoles the afflicted, lest the righteous put forth their hands and do wrong. Psalm 125 says, he will speak peace to his servants. Psalm 122. For if he were absent too long, no one could endure and persevere in those trials and ragings. This then is a great consolation in his great and exceedingly sad perturbation. And it appears that this, rather than bodily exhaustion, lulled Jacob to sleep. This affliction, this doubt, this spiritual struggle, this wrestling with trying to distinguish law and gospel in his own heart. For the devil came to terrify him within his heart while he was in flight and exile. But this then is Jacob's dream. Ha! A ladder has been placed on earth, a ladder which touches heaven with its top. So just, so just pause to imagine this is not a 10-foot ladder, a ladder that goes all the way. It just disappears into the, into the atmosphere. On it, the angels are ascending and descending. The Lord uh, himself is reclining at the top of the ladder and is speaking that the promise to this third patriarch. He is not speaking through a man. No, he himself is speaking, a fact which we have stated should be carefully observed in the histories of the fathers. It's not prophetic. It's God speaking directly. Moreover, the ladder is a picture, an image, as it were, that has to have a meaning. For the angels are spirits and fires, we read in Psalm 104, who make aside angels spirits and thy ministers a flaming fire this by the way is probably the most important bible passage about the angels psalm 104 when it comes to the character the vocation and the ontology of angels quoted also in hebrews psalm 104 makes thy angels spirits and thy ministers a flaming fire therefore they have no need of a ladder on which to ascend or descend much less does God himself have need of a ladder to recline on when he has to speak to Jacob, the heir of the promise. But the images and pictures suggested by this ladder have been explained in various ways, and it's not worthwhile to gather and recount them all. Luther's going to recount and look at some of them. First, Lyra. Oliver says, like the disciples on the Mount of Olives sleeping for sorrow. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's this idea he's why does Jacob fall asleep? It's not for exhaustion, although no doubt he's exhausted, but for sorrow and tribulation. Lyra says that the rungs refer to the patriarchs who are enumerated at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and the genealogy of Christ. Uh, for both sides indicate that Christ descends from sinners as well as from righteous men. The angels, he say, refer to the revelation of the incarnation of Christ, the revelation which took place through the fathers, the prophets, and the apostles. He interprets the ascent as the devotion of the saints when they pray. This thought is not irreverent, but it does not seem to be the principal explanation of the allegory. So we see Lyra, he says, the, the rungs are the patriarchs, the genealogy of Jesus, and the descent is the incarnation, and the ascent is spiritual discipline. That's Lyra's idea. The Glossa Ordinaria, and if I remember right, these are, um, the Glossa Ordinaria are like the, you know, they had study Bibles also back in the day, and you know how we have our study Bible, it has the text at the top, and it, and and then it has the footnotes underneath. Those, um, 
the uh, footnotes underneath are called the gloss and they had an ordinary gloss they had so they had their sort of study bible where they had they would have notes in it so jesus uh uh or excuse me here so so uh luther is looking at the uh the footnotes that they would normally have that are describing how this is a symbol of the incarnation of jesus the gloss ordinaria interprets the ascending angels as the blessed angels who minister to god in heaven it interprets the descending angels uh as those who do so to minister to men as it's written in hebrews 1 4 ministering spirits and daniel 7 we read a thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him so that's the gloss and then i think luther's going to give us one more gregory so this is saint gregory pope gregory gregory the great uh calls the angels preachers luther likes gregory almost always uh who calls the angels preachers who give thought to christ when they ascend and later when they descend to the church serve the members of the church but who could enumerate all these speculations although they are godly yet like many things in the fathers they have not been expressed at the right time or at the right place it is true that a preacher must first ascend through prayer in order to receive the word and doctrine from god he should also study learn and read and meditate later he should descend and teach others these are the twin duties of priests to turn to god in prayer to turn to people with doctrine but that's not what's going on here luther says that's that's true in other words the allegory that they give is a true thing but it's not what is happening here with the latter why we can read about this ladder in the Gospel of John from Jesus himself. Mention is made of this ladder in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We should look rather at that text, for there the Lord Jesus himself seems to interpret the picture. When Philip brings Nathanael to Christ, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. This is Jesus. Here also, Augustine says, he reminds us of the ladder of Jacob, who's called Israel. This is what Christ says. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. So, so the first thing is, uh, where does the name Israel come from? From Jacob. So here we're reminded of Jacob in the text. I saw you under the fig tree and you believe. This is what Jesus says to uh, Nathaniel. Then he says to him, you shall see greater things than these. And he adds, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. So Jesus takes this dream of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending. And Jesus says, hey, that ladder, that ladder is the son of man. We should believe and be content with this explanation of our savior. For he has a better understanding than all other interpreters, even though they agree properly in this point that this dream signifies the infinite, inexpressible, and wondrous mystery of the incarnation of Christ, who descended from the uh, was to descend from the uh, from the patriarchs Jacob, as God said, in your seed, etc. Therefore, he revealed to Jacob himself that he would be the father of Christ. And that the son of man would be born from his seed. God did not. Uh, God did not speak this in vain. Indeed, he painted that picture of the ladder to comfort and console Jacob in faith in the future blessings. 
Just as above, he gave the same promise to Abraham and Isaac in order that they might teach and transmit it to their descendants in a certain and infallible and expect a savior from their own flesh. In this way, God strengthens Jacob, who like the useless trunk of a tree is wretched and afflicted in a foreign land. And by means of this new picture, he transfers to him all the blessings and assures him that he is the patriarch from whose seed the promised the promised to Adam will come. So, so, so this is a this promise now. This vision of the of Jacob's ladder is a continuation of the promise that was given before. It was given first to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember when when the Lord is there with them and says to your seed, uh, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. And then the Lord gives that same seed promise later to Abraham and to Sarah uh, by the tents that are there. They have the seed promise. And then from Abraham uh, to Isaac and Rebekah. And then now who's going to get it from Isaac? Is it going to be Esau or is it going to be Jacob? And here Jacob is sleeping with his head on a rock, and the Lord gives him this picture of the ladder, and that's confirming now that this seed promise will also be for him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then from uh, from there to Judah, and that's Genesis 50, and then that seed promise goes quiet for so long, until at last it gets to David. So this is the this is the track of the of this promised seed from uh, from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah and then to David. This is why when the <clears throat> when Jesus is asks on Holy Tuesday whose son is the Messiah, they say David, but he's also the king from the tribe of Judah. He's also Abraham, Isaac. And Jacob. So this this ladder is giving that is tracing this promised thread all the way through. Whew. It's great. Therefore, we must understand. Now, Luther's going to dig into this a little bit more, and this is really beautiful. We must understand the angels and their proper meaning, as Christ calls them, John 1:51, where he speaks of them as angels of God, that is, the blessed ones. They ascend and descend on Christ or upon Christ. The latter signifies the ascent and descent that are made by means of the ladder and by means of rungs. Oof, what's going on here? If you remove the latter, it signifies nothing else than the ascent and the descent. The angels, however, do not use a physical ladder or an imaginary one. Nevertheless, there is an ascent and a descent, that is, an angelic ladder, so to speak. This is the principal meaning, just as Christ himself explains the descent and the ascent of the angels upon the Son of Man without a ladder. But what is the ascent and the descent? I reply that it is the very mystery that in one and the same person, there is true God and man. Now, this, this is so phenomenal. So we, we'll remember here our Christology that Jesus, in the person of Christ, is God and man united in what we call the personal union. 
So this unity of person, accordingly, the unity of person fulfills this mystery. And we who believe fulfill the word of Christ, you see the angels ascending and descending. For we believe in one Lord, his only begotten, his only begotten son, born of the Virgin Mary, true God and man. Uh, th this is almost a quote from the explanation of the catechism. Uh, what does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me. This mystery is so great, so grand, so inexpressible, that the angels themselves cannot marvel at it enough, much less comprehend it. But as stated in 1 Peter 1, these are things which the angels long to look into. For angels cannot rejoice and marvel enough at this inexpressible union and unity of the most diverse natures, which they do not reach either by ascending or by descending. If they lift up their eyes, they see the incomprehensible majesty of God above them. If they look down, they see God and the divine majesty subjected to demons and every creature. In other words, do you see, as you see the picture here, it's really wonderful. So the angels can't, the, the angels are, they, they are a reflection of the glory of God, but they are not God. So God is above the angels, of course. And here the angels are here. And so the angels look up and they see God, wow, in glory. But angels are not mortal creatures, so they also look down. But what do they see when they look down? Well, they see in the manger, they see God there, too. So that the angels look up and see God, and the angels look down to the creature below them, and they also see God. This is Psalm 8 stuff. You made, oh, here. This is Psalm 8. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. They see God in, in the flesh. They see Christ. These are marvelous things. To see a man and the lowliest creature humbled below all, and to see the same creature sitting at the right hand of the Father and raised above all the angels. So here's God in the flesh, and here's God on the throne, and it's the same. To see him in the bosom of the Father and soon subjected to the devil. Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Here's the cross. Here's the tomb. Here's the glory. And Jesus is both. Ephesians 4, he's des descended into the lower parts of the earth. This is a wonderful ascent and descent of the angels. To see the highest and the lowest completely united in one and the same person. The highest God lying in the manger. Can you, if you're, you preachers can preach this, by the way. This is the, this is Christmas stuff. Therefore, the angels adore him, rejoice and sing, <coughs> excuse me, glory to God in the highest. That's this right? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, on the other hand, when they consider the lowliness of the human nature, they, they descend and say, and on earth, peace.
glory and peace. And who's the glory of God? Christ. And who's the peace on earth? Christ. Uh, th this text, the Song of the Angels, yeah, at the incarnation of Jesus, Luther will say in another place, the angels are the most uh, spectacular theologians because they see in one moment all of theology all at once is that all theology gives uh, gives glory to God and comfort to us. I'll give myself a little more room here. So all theology gives glory. There's an L in there. Gives glory to God and all right theology gives comfort to sinners. To us. Just phenomenal. All right. We'll keep moving. When the, we see the same thing uh, in the life to come, we too shall feel and speak far differently from the way we feel and speak now. For now, these are things such as the angels do not comprehend, nor can they be satisfied. The angels marvel at this. Indeed, they always desire to look into this inexpressible goodness, wisdom, and kindness and mercy poured out upon us when that person who is the highest and is terrible in his majesty above all creatures becomes the lowest and most despised. We shall see this wondrous spectacle in that life, and it'll be the constant joy of the blessed, just as it is the one desire and joy of the angels to see the Lord of all, who is the same as nothing that is the lowest. So Luther's saying that the angels can't even comprehend this. We can't even comprehend that we can't comprehend it. <laughs> but that our joy, our eternal joy, and, and our eternal blessedness in the life to come will be the fact that we'll be able to also stand on that ladder and see that the one who sits on the throne is the one who died on the cross. And that and the and the the, the contemplation of that truth will be our eternal will be our eternal joy we will see him as he is we carnal now luther's going to get after us <clears throat> we carnal and ignorant human beings do not understand or value the magnitude of these things we have barely tasted a drink of milk not solid food from that inexpressible union and association of the divine and human nature which is of such a kind that not only the humanity has been assumed, but that such humanity has been made liable and subject to death and hell, and yet in that humiliation has devoured the devil, hell, and all things itself. This is the communion of properties. Uh, this is a technical term uh, for talking about the two natures of Christ. God, who created... Oh, let me... Let me highlight that in green. God, who created all things and is above all things, is the highest and the lowest. So that we must say, that man who is scourged, who is the lowest under death, under the wrath of God, under sin and every kind of evil, and finally under hell, is the highest God. Why? Because it's the same person. Although the nature is twofold, the person is not divided. Therefore, both things are true. The highest divinity is the lowest creature, made the servant of all men, yes, subject to the devil himself. On the other hand, the lowest creature, the humanity or the man, sits at the right hand of the Father and has been made highest, and he subjects the angels to himself, 
not because of his human nature, but because of the wonderful conjunction and union established out of the two contrary and unjoinable natures in one person. Now, let me, can I just pause there for a minute and maybe highlight two things? Number one, that we are always in danger in our own day of despising theology. And when we despise theology, we miss this, which is the good stuff. I mean, this is, it's hard, but it's wonderful. Just stunningly wonderful that the God, that God does this. We're studying the two natures. Now, the second thing is, and let me pull up the whiteboard to, to discuss this is that when we talk about the person of Jesus, remember we talk about one person, that's Christ, and we talk about how Christ has, oh man, am I so happy that this is writing Uh, so nicely. One person, but two natures, which are divine and human, and that those two natures are united to one another. This is the personal union. That's the language. So this is the technical language that we use. And when in that personal union, in the uh, between the divine and human natures of Christ, there is also a communication of attributes. So that those things which belong to the divine nature are communicated to the human nature. And those things which belong to the human nature are communicated to the person. Okay. And in the unity of person, th- these are connected. So we want to speak carefully b- about this. But this, what this all means is that we can speak, for example, of the birth of God, the mother of God, the death of God, the uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one of the one of the dangers of of this sort of theological thinking is we think of things like, well, let's just think of the humility of Jesus. And, and the glory of Jesus. And we normally say, this, this is our temptation. This is maybe the reform temptation. Maybe even, I, I don't know, in the, in the fathers, in, in the history of, of the church, there's been a temptation to say, well, the humility belongs to the human nature. It's Jesus who's asleep. It's Jesus who's dying and so forth. And the glory belongs to the divine nature. Uh, sitting in glory at the right hand of the Father, being everywhere, this all the belong, all the glorious things belong to the divine nature. But Luther is going to be very helpful here, and he's going to remind us that's no surprise. That like, like that's it's not a deal that a man dies. It's not a deal that God lives forever. That that God sits on the throne. The deal, the amazing thing. That, that stuns us in the ministry of Jesus is that the glory belongs to the, to the person who is also human. And the humility belongs also to the one who is divine. Now, the key text for this is Acts chapter 20, where Paul is speaking to the uh, all the pastors ready to be ordained at Miletus. And he speaks this way. He talks about being ransomed by the blood of 
God. This is, this is the seat of our theology here. That God in Christ, because of the union of the two natures, that God has blood. That God has a grave. That God has a death. That God has a mother. That God has a birthday. That's that God suffers. Truly, God suffers in Christ. The Son of God. Jesus. And that the human nature of Christ also participates in the glory of God. So that the one who sits on the throne, and this would be maybe, for example, to take the picture that Revelation gives us, the one who sits on the throne is the lamb killed, the lamb slain. That that is the one who is in glory. So that so that the amazing thing that it is not that a man dies, but that God dies, and not that a man is raised, but that or sorry, that God is raised, but that a man is raised. This is the this is the glory of the incarnation. And this is what Luther is, this is what Luther is getting at. It this is the 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 sort of stunning truth of the incarnation. Here the uh Both things are true. The highest divinity is the lowest creature, made the servant of all men, subject to the devil himself. On the other hand, the lowest creature, the humanity or the man, sits at the right hand of the Father and has been made highest and subjects angels to himself. You see that? That the, the incarnation is the humiliation of God and the exaltation of humanity. It's amazing. This, therefore, is the article by which the whole world, reason, and Satan are offended. For in the same person, there are things that are to the highest degree contrary. For he who is the highest, so that the angels do not grasp him, is not only comprehended, but has been comprehended in such a way, is so finite that nothing is more finite and confined, and vice versa. <sighs> But he who is not comprehended, except in that word, as in breasts in which milk has been set forth and poured, faith takes hold of this word, namely, I believe in the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. These are the breasts, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell, on the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, after subjecting all angels to himself. Here there is God and man, the highest and the lowest, infinite and finite in one person, emptying and filling all things. This, then, is the ascent and descent of the angels of God and of the blessed who look on this, pay attention to it, and proclaim it, as can be seen on the day of the nativity. They de descend as though there were no God up in heaven. They come to Bethlehem and say, Behold, I announce great joy to you. The Lord has been born for you. And in Hebrews 1, we read, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. They adore him as he now lies in the manger at his mother's breasts. Indeed, they adore him on the cross. When he descends into hell, when he has been subjected to sin and hell, when he bears all the sins of the whole world, 
and they submit themselves forever to this lowest one. Thus, therefore, the angels ascend and see the Son of God who is begotten from eternity. On the other hand, they descend when they see him born in time of Mary. And whether ascending or descending, they adore him, one and the same, Jesus. This is how Christ explains the latter. I regard this as the chief and proper explanation of the passage. And this is that great and indescribable dignity of mankind. Do you see this? The dignity of mankind. What's the dignity of mankind? That we are so great and holy? No, we're sinners. We're dying. No. But this is the great and indescribable dignity of mankind, which no one can express, namely, that by this wonderful union, God has joined the human nature to himself. Ambrose, and especially Bernard, take great pleasure in this passage, which is exceedingly delightful, and in his work of the Incarnation. We should, that'd be fun to check that out. It's rightly and godly for them to do so, for this pleasure will be a joy above all joy and will be eternal blessedness when we truly behold there our flesh, our flesh, which is like us in all respects, in the highest as well as in the lowest place. For he did all this for us. He descended into, mm, look, for us. Can you, let's not miss this. Why did Jesus do all of this? He didn't do it for fun. He didn't do it for kicks. He didn't do it to show off. He did it for us, for you. He descended into hell and ascended into heaven. This sight the angels enjoy forever in heaven. And this is what Christ means when he says, their angels always behold the face of my father who is in heaven. They look constantly at the divinity. And now they descend from heaven after he has been made man. Now they look upon Christ and wonder at the work of the incarnation. Wait, he was there and now he's there. (laughs) They see that he's been made man, humiliated, placed on his mother's lamp. They adore the man who was crucified and rejected. And they acknowledge him as the son of God. Bernard. Now, there's a here's here's something. Let me can I look at you in the face? There's something um there's something dangerous uh that can happen, and that is when we miss the 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 the, the Greek tradition really loves to meditate on the incarnation and think about this mystery of the incarnation. But the problem is that they they do it so often missing the humiliation of Jesus or that the incarnation is for the purpose of crucifixion. And so what's really good about Luther here is that he has all the joy and wonder in the incarnation without losing the focus of the cross. You can't separate them for him, which which you can't separate them for us in the Bible. They can't be separated. It's so, that's so important. Bernard Loved the incarnation of Christ very much. So did Bonaventure. I praise these men very highly for the sake of that article on which they reflect so gladly and brilliantly and which they practice in themselves with great joy and godliness. Bernard, let's highlight this here. I'm not sure why my highlights aren't coming through. Bernard thinks and imagines piously enough that the devil fell because of the envy on account of which he begrudged men such great dignity, namely that God would become man. For he thinks that when Satan was a good angel in the sight of God, he saw that one day the divinity would descend and take upon himself this wretched and mortal flesh and would not take upon itself the nature of angels, 
Moved by that indignity and envy, thinks Bernard, the devil raged against God with the result that he was thrown out of heaven. These thoughts of Bernard are not unprofitable. <laughs> in other words, there's some use in them, for they flow from admiration for the boundless love and mercy of God. The devil was a very handsome angel and decidedly outstanding creature. But when he saw that it had been predetermined that God would assume human nature and not the nature of angels, he was inflamed with envy, anger, and indignation against God for not being willing to take him, who was a most handsome spirit, and for not being able to become a participant in the divinity and in such great majesty. It pained him. So this is Luther explicating Bernard's explanation of the devil's jealousy. It pained the devil that wretched mass of human flesh had to be preferred to himself, for he thought that all this became him and better than it did this sinful flesh, which is liable to death and all evils. And what's most surprising, this opinion crept into Alcoran, no matter who the author or what the occasion was. Um, I think that's the Quran. It certainly seems that the devil himself suggested to the author of the Alcoran that the good angels became demons because they refused to adorn Adam. Look, there's the there's the quotes. Huh? Satan could not conceal the sin of his. Therefore, he imposed it on the instrument of his to stir up hatred against God. He distorted the true cause of the fall as though the angels were compelled to adore Adam, that is a creature. And when they, the, uh, when they refused, they were hurled headlong from heaven and became angels. That's interesting. So Luther, here's Luther reflecting on how the idea of the jealousy of God, which was there so strongly in Bernard, crept into the Quran, but was distorted in the Quran as if the angels had to worship Adam. No, the, but the angels had to worship the incarnate Christ. Wow. This is an amazing passage. This is almost, uh, this is almost in agreement with what Bernard imagined. And by what he himself points out, that the devil betrays in what respect he has sinned. He wanted to be like God. That was the devil's sin. Which, uh, When he saw that it would come to pass that God would lower himself in such a way that he would assume man, he thought that this honor most properly suited him. This is how the ancients understood the well-known passage in Isaiah 14, uh, this passage about the devil. Well, this passage often understood to be about the devil. They refer to the fall and sin of the devil. The passage reads as follows. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. For then he would truly have become like God if God had assumed him into the unity of his person as he assumed man. The fact that the humanity has now been assumed makes this man the son of God because he is one person. This man born of the Virgin Mary is God himself created heaven and earth. The angel would have been adorned with the same glory if the Son of God had become an angelate. This is a word that I've never seen before. But this is the... Uh, huh. Look at this. And the, the Latin word here is in angelatus, which may be Luther's own coinage. Tertullian, however, had spoken of uh, angelificatia. So if Jesus, instead of becoming incarnate, if Jesus would have become, if the Son of God would have become in angelate, then he, the angels would have participated in the glory of God. But, but Jesus 
skips the angels and becomes incarnate, much to the consternation of the devil. So to speak, it had taken up that most beautiful spirit. For then it would have been said that Lucifer is true God, the creator of heaven and earth. This, says Bernard, is what the devil seems to have sought to achieve. But when he had been repulsed, he was inflamed with great hatred, wrath, and envy against God for honoring the human nature in this way with the divine nature, and because he himself was compelled to adore the human nature in the divinity, not to worship Adam, but to worship Christ. This is the origin origin of that hatred and rage of the devil and by the world which he plots and sets in motion the destruction of our nature with whatever darts and devices he can, for it is the height of his monstrous hatred against the seed of the woman, the son of God. It is he who is involved. This It is an ancient and inveterate hatred conceived and rooted in heaven. This is where when the devil is in heaven. So it can never be eradicated. Accordingly, the latter is the wonderful union of the divinity with our flesh. On it, the angels ascend and descend, and they can never wonder at this enough. This is the historical, simple, and literal sense. This is really quite amazing. Okay. Later, there is another union, a union between us and Christ, as John expresses in the very beautiful manner, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. This comes first. Later, he says, you and me, I and you. This is the allegorical meaning of the latter. So Luther is giving us the literal meaning and then the allegory. And we'll remember, and I just looked at the clock, so maybe this is a good spot to, to stop. But we'll remember that there's a handful of different unions uh, <clears throat> that the scriptures talk about. Let me, uh, let me just uh, do this. How do we clear this? Remember that probably when we use the union talk, there's three things that we're talking about. So the first is the union of the divine and human nature in Christ. And that's what we call the personal union. And that's the most important. The second is the union of the of Jesus and the believer, the Christian. Christ and the Christian, and that we are united with him. And this is what we call the mystical union. And this is, uh, and it's not just Christian, this individual Christian, but all Christians, Christ and the church. And then there's a third union that we talk about, which is the, uh, the sacramental union. And that is, how is it that we have Jesus uh, joined together with say the bread or the wine and so the whole christ body human nature and divine nature is in with and under such that the bread is the body and the wine is the blood of christ so we talk about the personal union the mystical union and the sacramental union and uh luther's going to give us this insight here in the text he says Jacob's ladder is about the personal union, but it can be uh, preached about the mystical union. And that's what's coming next. All right, that's probably enough for today. That's actually quite a bit. And I, I hope there's some questions. I got to go through the chat, but let's say a prayer and then we'll stop the recording and uh, jump into the conversation. Uh, oh Lord, we give you thanks that your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has taken into himself our human nature, 
so that he is humbled and exalted and brings us uh, with him to the glories of eternal life. Uh, Give us the beginning of joy and wonder that the angels have in pondering these things until we see his glory face to face. For we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Amen.